4: You're listening to FP Interviews.
0: In-depth conversations with interesting people. Footy Prime, your
4: almost daily footy fix. Hello there football fans and welcome back to Footy Prime the podcast. Interview. Sharman's here. Forrest is here. Brennan is here. One is around somewhere. He'll I'm sure jump in at some point because he can't go more than more than 10 minutes without talking. So, uh, Wango, wherever you are, um, we'll see you real soon. Um, our guest today is the latest inductee into the Canada Soccer Hall of Fame, uh, where he joins uh, Jim Brennan and Craig Forrest. So I'm not sure what it means exactly, but he also is in this year alongside Ryan Wilkinson and Martina Franco. <laughs> Patrice Bernier, Canadian soccer legend. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for inviting me. Uh, of course, yeah, you just mentioned I'll be in a Lucifer group that's a part of Jimmy Brennan and uh, with Craig Forrest. But yeah, it's really an honor to uh, be on your show. And uh, yeah, let's uh, talk a bit of soccer.
4: Today We're going to try and get uh, We're going to try there. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. I better accomplish something first in, in get to this country. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying for years, but they just keep... Brushing them to the side. I know. I understand why. You know, I, I bring very little to the to the football world in this country, unfortunately, these days. Um,
2: you're connected but, to the football world. You're connected to the football world. There probably be a hall of fame for uh, people who have uh, uh, been started from the media aspect and then jumped in. And uh, you're still connected to, yeah, Craig, Jimmy. Uh, I think you hey, listening with Dwayne, if I'm <laughs> correct. So
4: Patrice, if I'm hanging off their coattails, I got some real issues. And there's no <laughs> chance of ever getting in there. Hey, but,
1: also, but one thing, one thing I'll tell you though, Patrice, he does have a Hall of Fame pie. Ah, His
4: pies geez. are the best. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, go. Jimmy. I appreciate that. Patrice, so tell us, you know, obviously it's a big moment, you know, getting, you know, you've been retired now for a few years, but then getting the nod this year in the Hall of Fame. What does it mean to you as a former um, international?
2: Yeah, I think I'm still getting the grasp of it uh, because you know you you play your career to. Play your passion uh, made my passion my 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 job if you could say if we could say that if it's a job and you know retire i was happy i was able to retire here in montreal After a good sending off but you never know about hall of fame stuff like, you know you want to participate with the national team and at one point you tell yourself maybe i'll be on the list maybe i'll be a candidate at one point but when they called in uh kind of a bit surreal. Uh, the great thing is Samuel Pitt was the one who announced it to me, and then Maro Bielo, who I played with, he coached me, uh, and so that was great. I think once they actually do the ceremony, I think I'll really take in that my career is uh, stamped with people like Craig, with Jimmy, and and all the other uh, uh, people that are in the Hall of Fame, the women, the men, the, the coaches, uh, and uh, yeah, and it's great. I'm in a class with Rianne Wilkinson. She comes from Montreal also, so that's nice to have a nod with somebody who's, uh, who's been the uh, same surroundings, if you could say, and then uh, Martino Franco too, so class of 2022. But I'm still grasping it, but I might not say it's honoured because your your career, the legacy is now written. It stays there. It's uh, part of uh, of a Canadian soccer history, uh, and that's something that you, you, you can't take away. And uh, I think just happy for my parents also because they spent all those hours uh, going from field to field to tournaments, and uh, so the best way to pay them back, if you could say, is that you you managed manage to put yourself somewhere where uh, uh, very few people are, and and a part of soccer history.
4: Further to that, though, given the game now and where we're at with with World Cup qualification, you know, on the horizon, the game's never been bigger than it is now. When you look back to when you first started playing, you know, internationally, you know, um, all those caps ago, if you were told you know, it would take the 2022 to qualify for a World Cup for this country. You know, what would be your reaction back
2: then? Uh, You know, because at the end of the day, I was with a generation of players that were pretty good. You know, when you talk, I started off, Jimmy was there, uh, Dwayne De Rosario, uh, De Guzman. I think we had set off something, uh, especially at the Gold Cup 2007. So we felt we... Gone to the World Cup that we were on this cusp of being a, a generation that could make that step. Uh, so, looking at you're like it took so long because we all know Canadian talent it exists. It's not something foreign. It's not like we don't have the, the the talent. It was being able to get the unit and qualify. And a lot of people they don't realize I think how hard Concacaf is. They just assume that yes, because Canada's a major country in the world that you automatically are going to just go and stomp in Costa Rica, Panama, Guatemala, USA, Mexico. So going back to the past, yeah, I I would love to have been in the seat that the players are now with John Herdman. Uh, Because I I saw way before there was a Craig Forrest, Alex Bunbury. So talents that have proved themselves at club level abroad also. Uh, So when I started off, I hoped the generation I was in and Atiba was still young back then. Uh, so I was like I think we have a shot we have a group where we we believe we can match with the Americans and the Mexico and the rest of the CONCACAPS zone so it's only that we weren't able to do it at the qualifying stage we managed to do get some good performances at the Gold Cup 2007 and 2009 but to replicate it like the the national team is doing now it took some time because it's 86 and uh, we all believe that we should be there more often but like yeah, happy to to see that where they are because it's it's showing that yeah, Canada has soccer talent. And yep. I think everybody's calling now for his soccer talent from Canada. Hey, who's the next Alfonso? Who's the next Jonathan? Well, before it was difficult when you had a Canadian passport and people would brush it aside saying, you know, you're quite good at hockey, stick to that. So, Yeah. Patrice, I think if you
1: if you look at it now too where where the game is in the country, uh, back then when we played, you know, we we had to leave we had to leave. There was, there was no domestic leagues. Um, we had to go overseas. You ended up going over into Norway and, and numerous places to play. Um, and then you eventually came back. I think it was 2012. But seeing now the opportunity that the players have with major league soccer, with the Canadian Premier League now, do you think this is going to give us more opportunities to be successful and have a better national team going forward? Now that we do have these domestic leagues.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, back then, uh, when I was, I remember 1986 World Cup when I watched it, I was like, okay, I would like to be at the World Cup, but how? Because in Canada, the professional soccer wasn't what it is now. Uh, the platform wasn't structured as well as now. All I knew was I had to make the youth national team to try to get exposure, go to tournaments and hopefully get noticed. And I then I had to leave. Canada, if I really wanted to uh, to perform. And back then, even some national team coaches were like, if you're not in Europe, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, being selectable for the na- the men's national team. And now, when you look at the structure, you have MLS teams who have academies. So we're now developing players. CPL is now uh, up to par and players were 18 to 24 going, okay, if I'm not in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, what do I do? Now, you know where you can go and, and keep Progressing because we all know not everybody's a top talent at 15 or 16. And like Alfonso, and then just being discovered, people are like Jonathan, where it takes more time. You have another route. Uh, now being CPL with MLS, it seems like the structure is uh, stronger and clearer. The pathway seems to say, okay, kind of like hockey. We all knew I grew up in hockey and I played it. So I knew I had to be at this level and I had to take the next level, the juniors. To be able to be selectable uh, in the professional ranks. Back then, we all knew it was the national team, youth national team. Hopefully, we we'll go to a World Cup. Hopefully, exposed, and hopefully, you get a, a shot. Or you just go on a trial and you, you you take your chances. And now, when you look at it, uh, it gives us a lot more uh, possibilities to have a player proof. And now, it's just looking at the women's department to have the same here at home, so that. Uh, Because I think they're in the same situation that we were as players. They have to leave uh, or they feel they have to leave to be able to sustain playing all year long and to be able to perform it with the women's national team. So but on the men's side, definitely the structure is placed and uh, it looks it's looking promising and going to the World Cup. I'm not going to lie. You all know the people now are going to be like the people who have money also are going to say, hey, we need to invest into this because it's prominent. Uh, We have success. They're talking about us. And now maybe they'll allow us to be successful for the next few years. And yeah, going to World Cup also allows to have a few million dollars for the CSA to be able to uh, to put in infrastructures. In I the, think
3: the also the, one of the things too, Jimmy, I think with the domestic side of things, both for the women and men, is the fact that not everybody can get work permits in Europe, depending on where your background is from, where your passport's from. I don't even know about the Brexit thing for England. Now they're not part of the EU. Who, um, you know, with with my passport, I move and uh, make a comeback in in the EU. <laughs> but uh, no, I probably couldn't. The women, a lot of uh, guys, at the same situation. If they don't even have the opportunity to get over there, because if you're not in the national team playing 75 percent of your games, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, ranked in the top whatever, which Canada is fine in, you still can find it difficult to get a professional career in Europe. So domestic league is so important for that.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And I think, look, guys, if, if we're going to be honest as well, when when we were growing up, uh, Patrice, you know, you in Quebec and, and me in Toronto, Craig, you out in, in Vancouver. And when we were playing, I played with players that were better than me, that were phenomenal players, but just they couldn't go overseas. There was nowhere for them to go. And I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough because I had a passport. I could go over to Europe and play, but – a lot of the talent just got brushed aside because there was nothing there. Whereas now, all those young players that are, are great, that can't have that, that don't have European passports, at least they, they've got something to strive for here and make a very good living playing major league soccer.
2: Yeah, yeah. If I take uh, the example to our our neighbors, uh, it's now taking them. You know, they've been good uh, on the U uh, in terms of qualifying, but the U.S. domestic players are now getting. Even more exposure, uh, talked about more and probably now, as you mentioned it, they the USA passport and the game passport also because of Alfonso and Jonathan. People are looking at it like, okay, where's the next prominent talent? And he's playing locally already at 16, 17 in professional ranks, getting those minutes. Uh, wouldn't we have seen in the past, uh, Borges or Waterman going to MLS or MLS young players like Alfonso living at uh, 17 or a top talent, if they were not already in Europe, or with a European passport, or situations mm-hmm. where that that were maybe uh, maybe more clear, or I can't say easier, but allow them to have an opportunity. Now they uh, we have. So are we set for the next few ten uh, decade? I don't know, but definitely the pathway is uh is structured and more compact, and people know where they can go to keep striving for their dream. Because we all know, you don't know if at 16, you'll be a pro if you're going to make it. It sometimes takes you till you're 19, 20 with games and everything and to develop. And, and others, de- you know, there's early and late developers. And now the CPL, the MLS is giving that opportunity. to. And also, I would say mentally to be strong, to be competent and to be. I don't know how it was for you guys playing in England or in Great Britain, but. Uh, When you go there, it's a jungle and sometimes you have to know what your strengths are. So when you get there, uh, it's another challenge. But you know who, how good you are and you know how to prove yourself because the mental challenges of playing abroad, uh, not being at home, the family is not there anymore. And back then, you know, uh, cellular phones just started existing. So there wasn't the internet now. So uh, different challenges allows them to be uh, stronger mentally and have the bigger, found better foundation to go and perform on European soil or any other uh, uh, national league that, uh, across the world.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned that because in uh, the challenges in going or going to Europe uh, aren't easy. Uh, Richie Larea is a really good example, uh, leaves Toronto. Dream gets a great move to Nottingham Forest. And the unfortunate thing with him is the team is flying. They're playing really well. They keep winning. They're winning FA Cup games and he can't get into the side. And sometimes the national team, as you know, can also hold you back a little bit because the club know you are leaving again in a few weeks. Uh, not that there, there's an international break, so they're okay there, but you're still out of sight, out of mind. So you got to be right in front of the manager all the time and he's looking to try to get in there. And and also John Herbin wants him to be playing first team football. To be part of the Canadian first team here too, so there's it's never easy and it's not a, there's never the right or wrong sort of pathway I don't think
2: no no you know because Jonathan is one uh, example who left uh, if you could say early and made his way to Belgium but you said it because at the end of the day you you have to establish yourself meaning you need to get the minutes you need to play you need to show that you you are the best at your position there's competition already internally in your club. And then once you go abroad, there's the factor that, you know, you you have to leave on international leave. How many of you guys, I'm pretty sure the coaches were like, where are you going to play? Jamaica? Uh, St. Kitts? Are those vacation places? Are you really going to play soccer? And I know because I had the same conversations. Oh, yeah. club, (laughs) Club over country and you want to go represent your country. But, you know, when you come back, your spot may be gone because somebody trained that week. And back then, it wasn't always international breaks, weren't always clear, uh, yeah. depending on which division, which league you were in. Uh, so those are things that now young players, they can yeah. at least know how good they are and coming in with a status, if you could say. Knowing yeah. that, hey, I came into this league and I've proven and the club has invested in me. So I have a fair shot to at least keep my spot because of uh, the the status that I'm coming with and the experience and the baggage of playing domestically also. And the clubs do have a point.
3: They are paying your wages and they're paying a lot of money to you. So uh, they do have the point. I, they, I sympathize with clubs about the situation.
4: Well, I mean, obviously with we, Canada doing so well now and getting a bit of a name uh, around the world, um, that really helps, obviously. Mm. And when we mentioned, you know, Jonathan there, Patrice, Fonzi, uh, Fonzie, Kyle, Tiba, I, I would think now the Canadian passport carries more weight than in the past. When you went yeah. over to Europe, was it tough being Canadian? Were you were you seen as a certain quality of player when you first got there because of your passport?
2: Yeah, because when I got to Norway, everybody's like, some people were like, ah, Norwegian soccer is not necessarily in the top tier. But even when you go there, there's foreign players. And the foreign players are coming from where? Africa, the rest of Europe, South America. You're competing against them. And your country is not known to produce prominent High level talent at least known globally, so now that Alfonso and Jonathan are looked at as the best not the not only very good Kenyan players, some of the best at their positions in the world, at least at, at, in terms of top talent now an agent, what are they telling agents hey where's the next one? Can you find the next one? Do you know where he is in Montreal Toronto Edmonton, Calgary, wherever we don't want to miss out, and these Canadian players are good, which is probably opens the door to Richie Laria probably opens the door to a Cal Arin. Uh mm-hmm. When you look at guys like Atiba who had, you know, he went to Sweden, Denmark, Holland, uh, then Turkey, and you look at the talent that he has where you tell yourself, should he be in a top league normally? Mm-hmm. But because maybe being a Canadian, you're like, you take a foreign spot. Do we want to invest into you? Uh, because mm-hmm. back then, you know, every country had only four or five or even three. And like uh, Craig mentioned it, in England, Canada mm-hmm. wasn't, top 50 or top 40 back then. Uh, so, But now agents, I presume Nick Nick the agent of uh, Jonathan, his phone's bringing with talents who want to be represented by him because clubs are saying, hey, where's the next Jonathan David? Where's the next Enfonso? Are they knocking at the door of an MLS team or a CPL team or somewhere that nobody has discovered them? And can mm-hmm. we get them at a the price where there's still not a high-level price where we're paying too much for it? because every European team is always looking for the new, the new spot where it doesn't cost you as much because Brazil and Argentina, it's costing you tens of millions of dollars, Africa now too. And, and North America seems to be the new hot spot for a young talent.
3: Uh, do you think Patrice moving forward, uh, you know, look in Canada, the, the costs of playing football, soccer in this country are still pretty high. And, you know, Alfonso was a community story. He was supported immensely by his community in Edmonton. Um and then he went goes, goes on to Vancouver. I just worry about in the future that we miss out on some of the talent that are just unable to afford to play any sport. sport yeah in Canada. I mean, yeah, let alone soccer of- with ones.
2: Yeah, the reality of our uh or sports uh, scene in in North America is Everybody pays to play, if you could say. Uh, and uh, in soccer now, it's getting more expensive. And And you know that there's certain talents. I remember I played against guys that were or with guys that were from different eras where it was difficult. But they managed, or we managed to find ways for them to play. I presume even in Toronto, I know a bunch of players were in the Scarborough area, bunch of tons of talents. Can they now join the elite? Because... Maybe the 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 uh, the economic situation makes it that they can't keep up. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why in my area too, I'm trying. I've developed my own foundation to try to keep kids in sports, but also to lend a hand to the kid who has potential but can't keep paying the wage, uh, the fees that it takes to play soccer. Even though soccer is not as expensive as, as other sports, so there is a the reality that we might miss out on certain talents because. Or they might be derailed, meaning they might leave soccer because, look, by 15, 16, I can't keep playing. My mm-hmm. parents supported me when I was young, but now I'm an adolescent and I have to do things on my own. Uh, It's not easy. We are probably missing some talents where you look at Europe and other places where soccer, normally, I think it's uh, uh, it's almost free or at least the cost of admission is very low or taken by the club so that you don't miss out. Mm-hmm. Imagine Paris, all the different neighbourhoods, they would be missing out on the Mares who's in Man City or all these kids because they couldn't be able to play. Uh, So uh, Mm -hmm. there is that big question. Are we missing out on certain talents because they can't afford to keep up with the the reality of uh, when they get to the age where it costs a bit more to to be able to to, to go to the elite and then hopefully make a professional club or an academy or something.
4: It's interesting, isn't it? We're at this crux right now where on one hand – we're growing as a soccer nation, and, and the men's team is fantastic. The women's team is a gold medalist at the Olympics. Age grades are great. The women's under 20 just qualify for a World Cup. Everything's looking great. But then on the flip side, we're seeing now what it costs to play and for your kid to play and the development pathway. Not everyone can, can do that, unfortunately. Is that actually the reality of being becoming a soccer nation now, slowly but surely. There'll be more accountability at every level.
2: I assume that making the World Cup uh, will open the eyes because we all know tomorrow if we want to build a rink, a hockey rink, a lot of people, I won't say it's like this, but it'll happen a lot faster than (laughs) uh, creating a soccer complex. Now going to the World Cup without opening the eyes saying, hey, 2022, we're at the World Cup. 2026, we're going to be hosting the World Cup. Uh, Let's jump into this. Let's invest into these young talents. And people, I don't know how, what, I don't know where people, ha- if they haven't read, but football, there's a lot of money in it. Transfers. And I think it's just now they're realizing, you know what, if we develop players, we could make this a business. Uh, and yet the rest of the world has been doing this for ages. So uh, I hope that going to the World Cup will open the eyes to people want to invest into the game even more, which will probably allow young talents to find a way to go where it maybe will cost less, or at least somebody can take take them on board uh, because they've created a, a structure where you know investors have come in and then the kids can maybe come in at a lower price or even free, if you could say, at one point.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, we could also look, guys, at the whole picture. And obviously, the Canadian Soccer Association look pretty good at the moment. But has the development or have the CSA played a major, your part in the players on this national team if you go man right through them you have to say well other than participating at the youth levels and going to the under 20 tournaments no no most of them are are local uh brampton's got a great soccer set up there uh ottawa and vancouver whatever but they're they're sort of local and then they go off and do their own thing at a young age and hopefully make the professional grade. So we have to sort of look at, at it in a bigger way, is that don't let the success sort of blind the fact that I'm not sure that many things changed, Patrice. Yeah.
2: No, no, there's still work to be done. And I go back to looking at our neighbors. Mm-hmm. They've gone to what was several World Cups since 1994. That's a lot of millions of dollars every World Cup you go. That's a lot of money that you can now reinvest into infrastructures, coaches, formation, getting uh, talent better uh, equipped, if you could say. They've probably made hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of uh, revenue coming from qualifying to the World Cup. And now that money can be reinjected, And I'll help the CSA go, okay, now how can we spread it and have hubs and that we can't see control, but we are keep on bettering the situation so that we don't miss out on talents. Uh, and that uh, that we are connected to all the clubs, we're, uh, uh, soccer scene, because also we, there's always the the political part of, you know, the, the CSA, the, the provinces, the clubs. But mm-hmm. at least now the money would be able to have it structured. How many clubs still have volunteers where it's not necessarily somebody who has a license who's coaching? Who has? We are just slowly now working where you have to have a a required qualification to be a coach so that we have the proper uh, coaching uh, from the youth, the grassroots, all the way to the different elite levels that they are. And it's not just once you reach the professional ranks that you realize, oh, this is great coaching. Uh, I know Brampton, there's probably FC Sigma, there's places that do have it, but I mean, there's not that many of them. And, and that money coming in from the World Cup will probably help out and probably help out structure a women's league also. Because we all know there needs to be investment there so that the girls don't have to uh, all go uh, abroad or down to the down south to the U.S. to, to be able to play, uh, to make their passion, their uh, make a career out of their passion.
4: Obviously, you mentioned the World Cup coming in a furious time. Pretty soon, Patrice will know who's hosting games. We know Toronto is. Um, there's rumblings. Vancouver are back in the mix big time as well. What's the conversation like right now in Montreal? Uh,
2: Montreal, it's pretty much dead so far. We we were in the mm. conversation. We were candidates. Now, uh, I do not understand. Like I said, I don't think sometimes people see the bigger picture. Uh, I know the reality of COVID maybe has changed the reality of the province because uh, a lot of people are saying Montreal didn't want. Montreal wanted. It's just the backing of the province didn't come uh, because the big O needed a lot of renovations. Uh, but the biggest question I have here, and this is solely as a Montreal is we have this big stadium that's been there for decades and we haven't renovated it while most cities in the world have uplifted an old stadium. If you look at Wembley who's a mythical place in soccer. They've decided like, look, let's make this a new place for fans fan experience and for other events, because people are always thinking, oh, it's the World Cup. No, it's for other events that you could probably host after the World Cup. So it's, I'm sorry to hear that Montreal is no longer in the running. And now, like, Vancouver has an opportunity because I think they were not, they, they decide not to go in early on. Uh, so for here, as a fan, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, like, uh, it's sad is it? because this is the biggest event in the world. It's not mm-hmm. it's not just an event it's the biggest event in the world and we won't be able to be part of the party. I'll have to go to Toronto or fly to <laughs> fly to Edmonton to to watch a game. It's it's so crazy. I,
4: 20 it, years I've been doing this business. 20 years and every year the the term the big o needs renovations comes up. It's crazy, eh, Craig. I mean yeah, that's- But
2: this was the <laughs> perfect even the Statsupudo people were saying needs an uplift. This would have been able to use that money uplift it so that you're relevant for the next 10 20 25 years and that's the part of Mm -hmm. why sometimes i understand it's money it's not my money somebody has to invest it but you have to invest money to pretty much make money if the way uh, and and to uplift yourself into the 21st century because the big o is 1976 so hasn't been uplifted for the twenty first century it's still a twentieth century stadium
3: <laughs> to be fair it's been a it's been a piece of shit ever since
2: <laughs> so see i'm gonna let you say it because you're not from Montreal <laughs> I can believe it but i am not gonna, i'm not gonna say it but <laughs> now is, like even now the cF Montreal is playing games but uh, the sound the system everything is not obsolete and now before they used to have u two majors major uh uh, bands come in, major events, and you can't. Uh, and even yeah. the roof. Uh, it snows just a little bit. You have to postpone games. So it's the reality yeah. of uh, I, I'm i looking at it as a pure fan amateur, but I'm telling myself they could have invested. And this is money that will have been, can't say well invested, but uh, would have been able to renovate and put yourself in the 21st century. And, and let's hope have youth World Cups, have other events. If not mm-hmm. one day, the Olympic Games, you never know. But at least you would be state of the art because at one point you're going to have to either you tear it down or either you put a lot of money to put it to do something with it so that it could be used uh, for the Montreal public and for uh, uh, events.
3: I think Stad Saputo uh, being made uh, at a level would have been a better thing than the Big O, just as well as the fact that the, the whole community in Montreal see the Big O as just a money pit. Ever since 1976, it hasn't worked properly. It's just been one thing after another. So putting that aside, invest in the Udo Stadium and, and make that a, right next to it. You got great facilities right there. Yeah. But uh, the, again, you would the, have to expand it.
2: Everything, everything is on the, uh, you, uh, they call it the REO. It's pretty much the Olympic committee or Olympic uh, territory. So, the Stats Saputo is on it. So, right. even if Joey Saputo wants to uplift, he needs the approval of the city and the approval of the there because you know why the back end of the stadium is open? is Because yes. the tower. You need to see the tower. So, there's rules and regulations that don't allow Mr. Saputo or the Saputo family to go, you know what? We might want to get the World Cup. Well, let's boost the stadium to 45,000. Uh, but I can't do it because – I need approval. Wow. Uh, and then after that, it's what does it look like on the, on the Olympic scene of all the different uh, uh, buildings and complexes that are mm-hmm. on uh, the platform. So therefore it's not wow. that as simple.
3: That's right. It actually reminds me because I, I remember talking to somebody there about the gap, you know, down the main sort of closing that in yeah. and they're like, no, no, we can't because the village was there and there was some man, some, Agreement that you had to have a line to the actual town. Yeah, you
2: have to be able to clearly see from the village. You have to be able to see the Olympic because that's what they sold in 1976 when they all uh, it all happened. Wow! And now when you build something, it's according to certain rules and regulations of the area. You know, it's funny, but even having hosting small events just outside of Saputo Stadium, mm-hmm. that's hard too. Because uh, I'm the first one to say, how come we don't have like kids' stuff happening around the stadium so that there's it, you know, it's a happening being around the stadium and all that comes with approval of the Olympic, uh, the Stat Olympic Committee that uh, manages cow. the whole uh, whole platform where the Big O is, the Statsapuru, and all the different little uh, uh, platforms good. that are in the complex. So, that's so you know, uh, so that's the reality because we all know, okay, maybe the Big O, skip that, would have been nice. I think that in BMO, that's what happened in Toronto where they're upscaling it so that they could host a, a at least have the the seating arrangements for a world cup because i think it's like forty three thousand the minimum you mm-hmm. have to have mm-hmm. uh, so that's reality so uh, i'm sad but much could have had that this big uplift and create tourism uh the evaluations yeah. that were made were very positive in terms of revenue being generated into the city uh, because of the world cup and probably after it but mm-hmm. rah, we are not in hey. those seats so uh, it's not we're not the decision makers for that reality look forward to seeing you <laughs> <Not, yeah. laughs>
4: hey listen i'll tell you what when, when the games kick off for that and it's not just you know 10 games in Canada it's not just a few games in each city it's a festival for a month right that's what it is and there's going to be a number of cities on opening kickoff thinking what the hell were we thinking why did we not jump into this it, it's ridiculous and, and that's why i think vancouver have now lost, man. What
2: were we thinking? Let's get back in the conversation, and that's what we're hearing is going to happen. So it's, I'm it's crazy. Give you example: Real Madrid came to Montreal. Chelsea came to Montreal, and they all liked the train facility at Nutrilé Center. And the reality is, like, hey, you know, Montreal's a nice city, and we could just fly in, fly into New York, and come back and train and be in an environment that we we like. And then you discover that the city is somewhat, in terms of Montreal, somewhat have European flavor. Uh, so all that, and if those professional clubs thought about that and came back, because Real Madrid came twice, uh, you would think coming to the World Cup, maybe other teams would be like, you know, yeah, let's come come back, have a host of game here. Uh, you know, all the you see all these big games that are played in New York, the promotion for Argentina to play Brazil. Why can't we have those in uh, in Montreal, Toronto, or Edmonton, or Vancouver, or any other city? So hey, listen, if picture.
4: killing them. If Kylian Mbappé is not, you know, staying in Montreal during the World Cup, it's a complete joke. Like, come on. If there's natural fit in the world for a team, perhaps world champions by then, by the way, to, to stay and train in Montreal and play game. And come on. What are you thinking? Get your asses hey, in gear and
2: do the right thing. 48 countries. 48 <laughs> countries because that'll be the first World Cup that 48 countries are joining. So that's forty 48 countries that have new fans. Not 32. Yeah. It's 48. But that's 16 other countries that are going to have fans coming into your country uh, visiting maybe for the yeah. first time, uh, hopping mm. from one city to the other, going, Hey, you know what? We're coming to North America for the first time. Let's go to New York, let's go to Montreal, let's go to Toronto, let's see a bit what's happening everywhere. And it's a uh, festive, it's festivities everybody loves, and it's summertime in Montreal. There'll be the F1, there'll be the jazz festival right after that. So, but you know, it's just <laughs> us uh, talking because we are soccer fans and we we would love, we know. What and we love, love
3: Montreal, too. We love yeah, Montreal. Yeah. Good time, good yeah, times in, in Montreal.
2: For a nice party scene. <laughs> <That> <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, that's the reality. It's, that's how you sell your country, too. Sell your city, sell your country, sell the culture.
4: Yeah. It made too much sense. Just good common sense, which obviously is in short supply at various levels of government. Um, staying in Montreal, um, it's been a tough start to the season for TF Montreal. Um, is patience wearing thin in that fan base? At the moment, I'm assuming it is.
2: Uh, It's much all. It's never easy here. So if you win, it's necessarily you don't have the style. And right now, uh, the philosophy kind of changed in the last two years with Olivier Renard and we'll pronounce uh, as the uh, chief coach of uh, this team. So it's a a younger team uh, jumping into the reality of investing into young talent and, and selling them. Uh, last year was a good season, even though they made they make the playoffs. But now expectations are this team should be a playoff contender, and the beginning of season is not necessarily as uh, as prominent. The, maybe the factor that the first leg they played Santos Laguna played very well in the second leg, qualified. Now people uh, start maybe uh, assuming that the team is even better than what it is, uh, because I keep reminding reminding people 2015. The first few months, we were poor in MLS, but we made a run to the final. And that excited a lot of the people. So maybe on Wednesday, they win the game against Cruz Azul, the second leg. People are just going to jump back in on realizing, oh, you know what? There's something happening now because they're going to the semifinals. They, it could be a possibility and it could be an all MLS semifinal. So telling yourself, hey, you know what? We've beaten this other team. So we probably have a shot to win the, the cup. Uh, so it's a difficult. It's a young team. Uh, there's a few injuries also. Uh, I still believe they need to be a bit more vertical because they're one of the better teams in terms of playing style. But they need to be more vertical, more uh, more uh, dangerous. And they have an all, you know, it's one of the teams that probably has the most Canadians on it in terms of CF Montreal. Now the back line is Alistair Johnson with Kamal Miller. So it's almost a national team back line here in Montreal. But the MLS is a long mm-hmm. marathon and the uh, uh, Champions League is a is a tournament. And uh, as you guys know, a tournament it could go very fast, and the people uh are, are going to jump on the bandwagon quite right quick. While we'll only know in a few ne- few weeks if where Montreal stands into the MS. and, today, and stand, they could get back into the fold with Mason Toy coming back from injury, uh, Bjorn Johansson, uh, Kai Kamara just arrived. Uh, Samuel Piet is injured a bit, so they still have some ni- uh, niggles and some injuries that are are they're not a fine-tuned team right now. And the Champions League is kind of like. Forcing the hand, saying we probably have to concentrate on this more than the MLS. Uh, mm. So we'll see. We'll see how it all goes. uh goes down by Wednesday because they're playing Cruz Azul, and uh, the first leg was not great, but the result was favorable.
3: I remember a few years ago uh, when they were playing in that uh, against uh, Club America. Uh, it was Club America, I believe. Oh no, it wasn't. Yeah.
1: No, it was, was Club it? America. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Unbelievable atmosphere. Unbelievable. So when teams are winning in Montreal, when the side's winning, man, they really do get behind you, do, don't do they? But they also are fickle. And if the team isn't doing so well, they step aside.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah this is a good time because the Montreal Canadiens are not doing so well. So the perfect time to get a little bit more of the fan base or people in Montreal back onto the team, this is using the Champions League leverage. You mentioned it. We played in front of 30,000, 30, the first two legs, or the first two uh, qu- quarterfinals, semifinals, and then we ended up playing the final in front of 60,000, in which was a baseball stadium or Olympic stadium. So if they do pull out a result on Wednesday, which is possible with only a zero one, uh they could get the, the fan base back on and people jumping in and re- realizing there's something possible, something happening. But when you go to MLS and then you lose, uh, that's the reality, because they all do have five losses in the last six games. So that's necessarily positive. But uh, Champions League is a tournament, so uh, you can win the next game and then uh, get the people back on. Hey, Patrice, i got two, two questions for you. It's off,
1: off topic, uh, national team. Um, but I, I wanted to know, I mean, you you grew up playing hockey. I played hockey as well growing up. Um, you played at a very competitive level in Quebec. Right. When did you realize that you wanted to be a professional footballer rather than a professional hockey player? Because the standard that you were playing was very, very good at the time.
2: Actually, and then, I wanted to be a soccer player really early on. Uh, if you all remember, there was Soccer Saturday back then. That's uh, right. Graham Leggett. Pretty sure you were Graham Leggett. And I used to tape every Saturday morning and uh, my because uh, I used to live uh, away from home for hockey. And they didn't understand the the uh, the the house the the people who usually house us they didn't understand because I was playing hockey but watching soccer all the time uh <laughs> It's just you're in Canada you're excelling in hockey at the stage where the next level is going to the n h l or at least professional ranks so I couldn't say no and back then i I could balance both uh but uh in my heart of hearts, I knew I wanted to play soccer i already my father refused uh trial uh but he refused for me to go at the uh, uh, academy in France because hockey was doing so well, and uh, he probably hoped that I would become the first PK Subban be- before <laughs> PK Subban exists. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, mm. once I realized, talking to a uh, scout back then who told me, you know, you're good, but you're defenseman. You're five foot ten. I was uh, like 175 pounds. He says, taking out some weight is one thing, but growing. Uh, I don't think you're going to grow at 17, 18, and uh, and then I understood. You know what? Uh, it doesn't seem like I'll be reaching the NHL ranks. So, and the national team was I done, done well. I was with under seventeen, under twenty, and I was uh, jumping into the under twenty three. Uh, so I told myself, you know what? I'm going to concentrate fully on soccer. And I had a sc- soccer scholarship waiting for me at the same time because yeah. I chose to concentrate a little bit more on hockey because the culture here was that was the reality. Like, I couldn't go. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Hockey uh, brush aside. I'm gonna go full out on soccer, and then yeah. once I chose soccer, I'm happy. It allowed me to have an 18-year career and uh, talk with you guys, and at the end of yeah. the day, it still allowed me to be in the hall of fame. So I would say I made no. a uh, correct decision.
1: You, you you did make a great choice. Look, I mean, I, I played alongside you, and you're one of my one of my favorite players to to play with, especially in that middle of the park. Just the way you read the game, you saw it, very comfortable on the ball, and and you passed to me. So I really
2: liked. <laughs> it. I <remember> Jimmy <laughs> running down the left. The no <laughs> like, ah, will be there to cover. Is all good.
1: <laughs> now, I mean, the next one though. The next, the next question for you, Patrice is, you know, you, you played for some some great clubs. You you got to do what we got to do was was travel and live overseas, um, which uh, our our sport allowed us to do so. And I think if we had a, another job, we wouldn't be uh, able to do that or travel as much as we did. Now, you lived in one of the most northern cities in in Europe and played for, I think, might be the most northern city in in European football, Tromso. Tell me what that was like living there with only having a certain amount of hours of light a day during that winter period.
2: Uh, Like you you mentioned, you know, it's crazy what we do to just play the game. and, And that was the ranks to go play pro. Uh so when uh, the opportunity went, I uh, got transferred to uh, Trumso in the north, which is, yes, it's the furthest country, the furthest city in a top flight league, if you could say, or first division. Uh, and there, the, the you know, the funny thing is in the south of Norway, when I moved there, people in the south were like, I would never go there. It's so dark in the winter. There's a lot of snow. And I'm like, wait, I come from Canada. Snow is not a problem. The The, the darkness. That's something that in the south, I kind of saw it, but it was 10 o'clock. It was still grayish. Yeah, it, you saw a bit of darkness, you could say. But once you, I reached uh, uh, Trumso in the north, and it was summertime, uh, there, it was 24-hour daylight. It's crazy. Pretty much, you, you have to have shades. You have to uh, block out because you come out of, and I'm not going to lie, we all know we played. Once in a while, you went out with your teammates. And you come out, it's like broad daylight. It's breakfast time. <laughs> so it was crazy. But when you go around October, it's getting a bit darker. And by November, there is no uh, daylight. Uh, it's only a grayish period around 9 to 10 o'clock to 11. And the rest of the day, it's pitch dark. And you lose track of time. And in the winter, you're pretty much like in darkness all the time. So it's, you. you have to find ways. And I was living with other Canadians. So Kenny Stamatopoulos was there. Lars Hirschfeld was there. Steven Alvedon. So we hang out together and we found activities to do because you can get lost in track of time, which with the winter, you're like, wow, it could be depressing because you're going to training. It's grayish. You finish training. It's pitch dark. Oh, no. What what am I going to do? It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, You know, it's not party time yet. It's not till eight or nine. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> or midnight. Uh, it's a crazy, yeah, yeah exactly. But <laughs> the factor is the summertime was fantastic because four o'clock at night, <laughs> it was like it was six o'clock in the afternoon, and you're having barbecues and you lose total track of time. Uh, but it's an experience, uh, the, uh, you know. And I saw, I must say, the most amazing thing I saw was uh, one of my teammates brought me to this place, and there's a lot of mountains in the north of uh, Trumso and I actually saw the sun go down and the sun come back up. The, the sky was still blue. It's just, you see the sun slowly disappear behind the uh, the mountains. Uh, you see the rays, but you don't see the sun anymore. And for me, it, it literally felt like it was a few minutes. It probably was a half hour, an hour. And then the sun goes back up. And that's a place where I would have never seen this. We do see it ourselves every day, but I saw it literally watching at it. And uh, wow. pretty much the sun disappearing and popping back up. So I'm going like to the most, dim- best experience we're Canadians, but we don't always live outside. Well, Norway, the, the temperature is not as cold. So I got to live tons of experience of being outdoors and doing stuff that I probably would have never done because I live in Montreal. I'm a city guy. And over there, yeah. they, they, they love to be uh, outdoors. Uh, they mm-hmm. ski, to, uh, ski to go to school. So it's just it's crazy. it's crazy. Well,
3: actually, you know, Patricia mentioned Norway at the Winter Olympics. They win the, the Winter Olympics, Norway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these always. giants, like it's it's incredible uh, of what they do, but they're these in sports to everybody. And but what I understand is their methodology is participating, getting outside, enjoying it, and it just creates this unbelievably sporting country that does incredibly well. Uh, which is an incredible yeah. that they could win the Winter you, Olympics. You, and, you have to and, give them
2: in terms of of their setup. It's it's uh, it's incredible. The one thing I always hated. Or hated is I got used to is because you know, you know, Craig, Jimmy, you guys played where when you lose a game in premiership, whatever, it's the end of the world. Uh, When I played in Germany for Kaiserslautern, you lose a game, it's a crisis. You lose two, it always everybody wants to cut your head. you bad management, bad players. (laughs) When you're in Norway, you lose a few games, it takes a few games until people realize, okay, the team's not good. Uh, The mentality is just different. And like you said, the methodology in terms of sports, it's uh, everybody almost, Grows up, uh, they grow up with the like, skis. So cross cross country skiing is is almost the number one sport there, with soccer and uh, and then mm-hmm. everything else. And they try out everything. I remember preseason where we would be doing tons of different sports, different activities. Uh, uh, running the mountain, uh, mm-hmm. cross country. I actually did first the first time in my life cross country, and we were doing competition. And the Canadian, the Swede, and there was a Finnish guy. We were the poorest. Of the, of the skiers. <laughs> so, but it was great because we touched a lot of other sports and they really, badminton, volleyball, they invest into sports. But you have to understand that per capita over there, their country is so rich that everybody could be a millionaire. If they, yes. really, if they wanted to give the money to yeah. everybody in the country, everybody yeah. would be a wealthy millionaire. That's how well they, they are in hmm. terms of a, a country. And, but like you mentioned, sports wise, it's great.
3: Do you get any of those guys uh, on the skates?
2: <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. No, Norway is not like Sweden uh, or Denmark or Finland. Finland and Sweden are more hockey. Yeah. Or Say, hockey is ingrained. Yeah. Norway, it's really cross- cross-country screen. They have hockey, but what I saw, most junior major players here could perform there uh, very well. While in yeah. Sweden, the level was very mm-hmm. high. Uh, yeah. So they're a lot more on being on their skis and, and, uh, and uh, you know, And a and bit of ski skating. And, uh, yeah, you should have done that. Uh, then, yeah. then it
4: would have been would last. Be nice. You're wasting your time there, Patrice. Jeez, <laughs> come on, man. I, I guess now also <laughs> the football the football world.
2: Good for the legs for soccer.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, yeah. with Holland now, they have that that transformative figure, right? A guy that could be the very best in the world and that could really help the game even more so, right? A guy that can really sell. Be the poster boy of Norwegian football. Patrice, we're out of time almost, but I want to ask you, you're a busy guy, TVS sport, obviously, um, but enough sport. It is one of your yeah, a business you're, you're really involved in? Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, in a sport about three four years ago, uh, a a man who actually is good with his hands and creates uh, equipment came to see me, and I jumped in to become a uh, an associate. and uh, And now we generate from Montreal. Uh, most ninety five percent of all the stuff is bought here and created here, so it's you know locally made. Uh, we make rebounders, small goals, mannequins. Uh, and soccer equipment. And when he came to see me, it's just to try it out. And I really liked it. Uh, it was, uh, it's a great uh, venue. If you go on the website, it's enovsport.com So E-N-O-V sport.com. And you're going to see, uh, the different types of equipment. And also, you know, uh, i tested it with, uh, CF Montreal. So it's professional approved, you could say. Uh, and, um, but it's, yeah, it's just jumping into, I know there's other uh, sports companies that are there, but they're usually American or otherwise. And we're trying to, uh, you know, create ourselves to be known and to realize that this is prominent, very good quality equipment made here uh, and that we are trying to you know, establish ourselves uh, in the soccer market and to, uh, to you know, give it for the kids, for the coaches and for clubs who are always looking for uh, places to buy stuff. And also, which is really good, it's easily be storable, meaning you can pull it, you can put it in, a, in your car. Uh, easily and transport it to fields and, and everywhere. So, uh, it's definitely uh, something I'm jumping into and hopefully make it known a little bit uh, here in Montreal and Quebec and hopefully across Canada. I
4: always okay. thought, um, that those mannequins used for walls and that in football, you could personalize them, have like, you know, like four or five Patrice Berniers in the wall, we'll have a Craig Forrest stuck there, or Jimmy Brennan over there. It'd be amazing.
2: Yeah. The, the, the funny part is that <laughs> me and it. you know what? I'd be
3: there. Get that tall guy. They don't yeah. want that tall guy.
2: <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the great thing of the mannequins, just to talk about them, is uh, we made it with mesh. And actually, a goalkeeper coach uh, spoke to my, uh, my associate saying, you know, you should put the mesh with a, uh, at the bottom with a, not necessarily a hole, but the ball can go through. Because in a game, what happens? You shoot a free kick through the wall. It goes through and the goal gets caught. So when you do the mannequin, it's, it's not just hitting it and the ball comes back or the mannequin goes down. The ball can go through and uh, creates the... Try to replicate what could really happen during a game as you're shooting uh, free kicks And the product is, it's the same as, it's called puck board. So what you make hockey boards of, it's the same product. So it's as resistant and quality. So normally it's not, it's unbreakable as they say. Uh, Mm -hmm. But like I said, uh, once in a while, I'll send you guys some stuff so you can test it out. And uh, and like I said, hopefully we are able to uh, establish ourselves as uh, one of uh, the companies that people look to to uh, to buy a uh, soccer material and hopefully we can dive into other sports and uh, we don't want to mm-hmm. just be soccer made. We're, we're going to try to uh, develop other stuff that are connected to other sports. We'll, we'll put that really on our
4: s- social media. We'll get that out there for you. Yeah. Enough yeah. sport. E-N-O-V sport.com. Any clubs out there listening, Canadian operated and owned. Um, and of course, Canadian hall of famer and legend Patrice Bernier involved. So get on there spending money where it should be spent. Um, we're out of time. Wonga, well, you jumped on there, pal. Anything you want to add? Oh, yeah. I, I just wanted to add.
0: Patrice, uh, thank you for your professionalism while you put up with Jimmy's phone going off for the 100th time. Um, Craig's internet, internet breaking <laughs> up and Charm's uh, dog trying to break into his room. Such also, assholes. you were talking about uh, darkness and light. I'm sure you were used to the darkness from Montreal because you did grow up in a city that had shape, hurry, and super sex. So those two things. And then the final one. You know, you know the
2: nocturnal part of Montreal quite well. So and, then, that, you know.
0: and then the final one, for anyone under 40, Patrice said that he actually taped all of the morning uh soccer. So when you tape something, we had these <laughs> machines called VHSs and Betamaxes, which allowed you to <laughs> tape things. Kids. So everyone, you can tape things. I so just wanted to make sure that everyone was clear on the technology. Go ahead. My, my
4: dad's got some old score uh, tapes lying around from when I first started. And man, was I awful. I'm sure there's some Jerry Dobson and Craig Forrest tapes lying around there as well somewhere. Hey, right, I got so some, some tapes that piece. I tried to roll and they didn't even work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know what kind of tapes you've no. got. Right? don't want to know. No, would be upset. They're in <a> Montreal too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Patrice, thank you so much, mate. Uh, this is going to be 25 minutes. It's actually almost an hour now. We could have gone on longer as well. We'll get you back on real soon as well. So, thank you so much.
2: Hey, thanks, guys. Always a pleasure, and always a pleasure to keep talking about the game. It's great stuff to see, and uh, yeah, we'll probably be talking about the World Cup very, t- very soon.
4: <laughs> Hopefully, in Montreal as well. Patrice yes. Bernier, thank you very much. All right, fellas, that was a fun show. As always, um, please make sure you like us, you subscribe, you follow us, you tell your friends and family all about us. We're back later this week with Footy Prime, the podcast.